0: So today we're talking about homebrewing for Dungeons and Dragons games. And I was thinking that there's another kind of homebrewing. So Brian, Adam and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm curious if you ran a distillery in your basement, what would be your most popular home brew, and what would you call it?
1: Well, my most popular brew actually i i have a question what does it have to be beer or can it it can be anything right Distillery is it, Still it,
0: it could be liquor. anything yeah uh you could go from paint thinner to cider and everything in between okay i
1: would stay true to my roots and i would go rum and i would go the bearded brew and i would just put my face on it just right there
0: yeah you'd put some hair on your chest and your chin right yeah
1: it would be that strong it puts it puts hair on anyone's face <laughs> awesome It's a Mimic, the Round Table Dungeons & Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get.
2: Welcome to another episode of our conversation on Dungeon Master Tips. I'm Adam, and with me today are Dan and Brian from the Bearded Nerd Media, and this episode is called Homebrewing, aka DMDIY for D&D and RPGs. It's Very nice. funnier when you see it written out. Yeah. (laughs) We've previously covered a lot in our conversations on Dungeon Mastering. We've talked about prepping for both your campaign and your upcoming session, how to create villains and horror, how to utilize different campaign styles, where to steal inspiration from in pop culture, and what to do when a player character dies. We've gone over our insights on dealing with problem players, attacking the character sheet, and giving out non-standard rewards. And of course, there were five episodes that broke down all the different condition effects and a couple of episodes on running mob monsters. You can find all of these episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist on Dungeon Master Tips that we built there. But for now, we're sitting down to discuss one of the most longstanding traditions of Dungeons and Dragons, and that's homebrewing. This topic is broad, and frankly, we could make a whole series about homebrewing and balancing DIY parts of the game. So for now, we're going to try to hit the most important parts of the conversation and hopefully give you some inspiration on when, why, and how you can go about filling in the gaps in D&D so you can get the best experience with this game. We've spoken about this topic a few times in the past, but it's time to really sink our teeth into it. If you'd like to hear us talk about reskinnings, adapting rules from other games and previous editions, or tweaking monster stat blocks, go check out episode 23 on Finding Inspiration, episode 26 on Designing Villains, and really most of the other episodes, where we're always throwing ideas at the wall to see what sticks. But before we dive into this discussion, let's welcome Brian, the Bearded Nerd himself from Bearded Nerd Media
1: hey brian hello hello salutations
2: how's it going brian
1: it is going well i can't complain how are you all today
2: i'm just peachy i am living the dream and dreaming the life
0: i'm 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 doing all right it's been it's been a nice relaxing day played some minecraft with the kids earlier today
2: so cannot complain at all there you so, go brian why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your your history with D and whatnot
1: sure so my name's brian aka the bearded nerd Um, I have been involved in fantasy tabletops since I can remember, uh, D and D was my first exposure, but as a child, my friends and I didn't know how to really play. So we just played whatever we thought we, you know, we knew of D and D. And my first character's name was Dane of the Misty Mountains because we loved Lord of the Rings. Nice, and we yep. just thought it was awesome. And I was like, I want to be a dwarf. Um, and I, I remember the 1980s cartoon, uh, f- the animated film, yep. and that really inspired me. But throughout the years, throughout high school, college, I was always involved in some sort of nerddom, whether it's comic books, anime, manga, d Later on in college, played uh, with my roommates, and then it wasn't until I got married, and my wife was like, "Hey, you, you need to find a hobby because your your work's killing you." And I was like, "Ah, well, I know a hobby that I can jump right back into, and that's D and D." So, I've been playing and DMing for multiple occasions, but I've been world building ever since I can remember, and I absolutely. Probably that's my favorite part of d and d so I guess I've been a d and d world builder since i could imagine
2: that's awesome uh you've got one of the more popular and uh uh prolific um instagram accounts for d and d as well you're pretty uh involved with the d and d instagram community aren't you i
1: i you know i found a home here i have found a home in the i g uh community of d and d and it's been great and i've felt so much love and so much compassion from folks. And I just wanted to give back, especially since someone gave me a lot of help when I was a kid saying like, oh, here's your first dice or here's this or that. Um, I wanted to do the same thing with the community. So it's been really nice to have that that welcome in the IG community.
2: That's really cool. You were there when we started our Instagram account. And from from where we sit, you are a OG D&D IG person. So. Well, I
1: appreciate it. I, I, um, my goal is to be, when I to be the OG, um, Instagram community member that has a long white beard when I'm like 80, and I'll be like, "Would you like to go on a quest, young man, or <laughs> whoever?" That's how I'm just gonna introduce myself, and whatever the future of IG, that's that will just be me.
2: <laughs> you should, you should just introduce yourself like that to everybody. Yeah. Every, every time that they ask you at starbucks what's your name you should ask them if they want to go on a quest in that voice would you like to go on a quest
1: sir i, I just want your coffee please please just give me your order this is the fifth time this week
0: <laughs> we've asked you to stop coming
1: in this, that's my poor gandalf every old person <laughs>
0: trust me it's voice. better than mine it's better than mine man i am not i am not i attempt voices and then they
2: all end up being some weird milieu of... Well, they end up going Rastafarian for a little while, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. they come back to, like, Bostonian. And so there's it's, it's a hell of a trip. Anyway, um. let's, uh, let's jump into the topic. Homebrewing. Homebrewing is the term that people use whenever they create an aspect of a game, usually an RPG, that they want to either apply to a pre-existing rule set or insert into a pre-existing game that's a pretty broad definition. Uh, Ultimately, homebrewing is when you make shit up that isn't in the books. Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks about it, everyone does it, and everyone has fucked it up at least once. So where do we begin? (laughs) At least once. Well, uh, there are a number of different kinds of homebrewing, so let's start with the simplest and work our way toward the most complicated. The simplest and least complicated and seemingly least world-breaking kind of homebrewing is simply reskinning. That's when you take one thing that exists, and without changing a single thing about the mechanics, you change the flavor and or name. For example, if I want to take the spell Fireball, but simply call it Fire Burst instead. Or if I want to turn my Oath of Devotion Paladin into a Knight of Fervent Servitude, because even though the mechanics are fine, this new title fits the narrative world better. The next kind of homebrewing is when you reflavor something by tweaking the mechanics to make it feel a little different. For example. You want that fireball spell to actually be ice burst and do cold damage. Or when that Oath of Devotion Paladin has fallen and is actually a knighted slave of Asmodius with access to Hex and some Eldritch invocations. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different things that players and Dungeon Masters like to reskin and reflavor, including, but not limited to, items, weapons, armor, spells, mounts, vehicles, monsters, class features, subclass features racial features, and pantheons. It's worth pointing out that some things, like the multi-classing rules or background rules from the player's handbook, the new playable races in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, or the backstory options in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, are built to be customizable. And that means that they aren't really homebrew when you use them or find a new combination of them. If If you're selecting from an option on a list, you aren't creating it or tweaking it, you're just choosing it. Mm. the next level of homebrewing is a kind of a half step between reflavoring and just straight up creating it yourself and that's when you take an idea and merge it with another this is when you take the book of vile darkness and the necronomicon smash their lores together and take the best of both worlds to create something new called the tome of unspeakables another famous example of this is when you make a gestalt character in D and When you essentially use the best parts of the starting features from two classes at level one, and then get all the features and bonuses from both classes every level after that. And then of course, there's simply making something up from scratch. A new spell, a new item, a new character class, subclass, or race, or a new monster. You often run across all sorts of homebrew creations littered around D&D social media, especially when it comes to stat blocks, new magic items, and interesting low-level spells. But The most famous examples of these homebrew additions to the game tend to be character classes that have been built by famous D&D celebrities. Obviously, I'm thinking of Matt Mercer's Bloodhunter and Matt Covill's Illrigger. Yeah. But if you think we're done, we're not even close. Beyond designing an evil pirate class or a monster called Dan's Sweaty Man Pouch, there's (laughs) also designing a brand new mechanic for the game, something that exists outside the basic set of rules. Sure. You made a brand new spell that has a casting time of three days, but that's still adhering to the basic understanding that casting time is a requirement of spell casting. What about when you make a mechanic that removes one week off of your lifespan for each level of spell you cast, or creating some sort of popularity counter for the bard to gain favorable reviews in a local newspaper? Building these unique mechanics is also an important kind of homebrewing that most DMs will try to apply to their games at least once. Making new rule sets can be a lot of fun. Even if it's just gamifying the profit intake of the bar that the barbarian just bought or designing the mechanics for the ranger or druid to scrounge up enough food during treks through the wilderness. There are enough homebrew festivals and specific mechanics for downtime mechanics to choke a freaking manticore that you can find on the internet. The the mechanics not the manticore. But You know what exists out there between making up your aspects of the game and sticking to the rules, mechanics, and lore as published by WotC? Other systems. Stealing and applying mechanics from previous editions of D&D or Call of Cthulhu or Warhammer 40k or whatever is something that most players will experience at least once in their D&D career. Every DM says to themselves, It'd be really cool if D&D let me do this thing from this game over here at least once. But the kind of homebrewing that Dungeon Masters are most famous for usually falls under another term at the tabletop role playing game community. And that term is world building. That's when you take the mechanics and the flavor that the officially published materials have presented and drop it all into your own fictional setting with a story that exists independently of the published adventure modules. I think most people these days are probably most familiar with Tal'Dorei and Exandria from Critical Role and Keith Baker's Eberron, both of which have been adopted and published officially by Wizards of the Coast. But this is by far the most daunting, challenging, rewarding, and common kind of homebrewing that I've seen online. Sure, everyone has increased the odd Cobalt's hit point total or changed a Flame Skull into a Lightning Skull at least once, but every single game of D&D that has ever been played has had some detail changed, tweaked, or rewritten to better fit the narrative of the unique table of players that are playing in it. In my game of Curse of Strahd, the windmill was home to a troll. In my game of Dragon Heist, we set the whole thing in Sharn in Eberron. In my game of Storm King's Thunder, we added a subplot so our Warforged druid could find his creator. Everyone does it. Everyone loves it. And everyone fucks it up at least once. But the reason we always come back to homebrewing is because we feel like there's something that is missing from our game that could, A, make it feel more epic and fun when we flex our muscles as players, B, seem more immersive and awe-inspiring to interact with the world as explorers and role players, B, fill in either the mechanics or the lore. So gentlemen, I've spoken long enough. Let's dig into these ideas a little bit more before we continue. So let's grab our dice and roll initiative. I got some questions. I got a nine.
0: I got a five.
2: Oh, I got a two. We almost never roll double digits on this show, so... Okay. Um, <laughs> you're Good hitting to right in, Brian. Um, Dan, you are up first. Sure. Obviously, the first unwritten rule of homebrewing is making sure that everyone at the table is aware that you're changing a part of the game. You don't have to spoil a plot point, but letting everyone know that you'll be playing in a blend of Ravnica and Eberron is going to impact each player at the table before session one. So in your opinion, what should be the second unwritten rule of homebrewing? What is the next most important piece of advice to players or DMs who want to start designing? Um, I'm I'm at a bit of a, a crisis of opinion here on
0: this one, because mm-hmm. really there are two things and I can't figure out which one is more important. One of them is, uh, to make sure you are communicating to your players um not just like what the mix is, but like with session zero level stuff with like hey this in in my world orcs are half orcs are created in this way that is different from the kind of one we don't talk about, right um keeping open and honest dialogue with your players while you are building into this world to see what kind of aspects they want before you bring it in it's incredibly important. But also having things make sense, have reason, have a have a logical series of steps to reach each conclusion, right? So if you are um, starting to homebrew your own uh, full campaign world, or even if it's just renaming some stuff and reskinning, um, knowing why is often more important than the the what, right? So if you can if you could rationalize the why, you'll get the what easily. So um I don't know which of those is more important. I know sometimes you want to keep things from a player, but like at the same time, you need to have that open uh, discussion with your players, right? So yeah, that's that's my answer. Uh, either open communication or making sure everything makes sense and and we're playing a game in which dragons and hags and beholders exist there are gigantic cubes of goo that melts your flesh from the bone that you can't see when you're walking down the hall things can get weird and the rationalization of it could just be magic isn't good enough you need to have an actual reason there has to be consistency
2: to yeah, your yeah consistent soul. yeah yeah Brian, what about you? What do you think should be rule number two?
1: Consent. I am about consent and not to like lay the hammer in the regards of like, oh my gosh, we're talking about something deep. Consent in the line of, hey, are you okay with us talking about vampires? This world has this, right? Being upfront and honest is really, you know, at least I I kind of get consent in this one general like bubble and everything that my players when i tell them my session zero this is the calamity this is what the world is this is what you need to know you have the ability to accept this or not it this is this will not i will never force an idea kind of kind of like what you were saying um earlier though uh dan is that you have to communicate with them but i can't In my mind and in my world, I can't further communicate if they don't want to accept that communication. Everything goes through that filter of acceptance and consent. If you don't want to play in this type of world, once I give you the disclaimers and what the world is, no problem. And I think that's the, that is my most important, you know, second most important rule and advice to folks.
2: One of the things that I'm hearing, so my second rule is, uh, is going to be supported by both things that you guys have already said and Mm. that is don't be afraid to get meta Mm, you're making these decisions for meta reasons and then justifying them like dan says for consistency within the world but don't be afraid to be meta when you're having a conversation with your players you want to add this really neat sword but it's going to be limited for the first three levels before a special power is going to unlock for whatever 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 Let the players know, don't keep them guessing, unless it's a secret plot point that you're trying to get going. Otherwise you're gonna sit there wondering what the hell, why are we doing this, right? So going a little bit meta because that's where we're coming from in the first place, isn't a bad thing. People talk about metagaming like it's a sin and it isn't. In order to communicate about this stuff, you have to metagame with your players at least a little bit. This is important because when you screw this up and things become imbalanced and people are no longer having fun, you can then, from a meta perspective, roll it back and change things, and no one's going to be upset with you because it's been a meta conversation from day one. When you look at well, Critical Role is a great example of this. They started in Pathfinder. <laughs> they yep. made a meta decision to swap over into 5th edition D&D. That was meta. Everybody on in the table knew that. It, Matt Mercer didn't just show up one day and say, all right, so advantage is a thing now, and my God, my monster's going to get it. You guys figure out how it works didn't do that. They just they transitioned campaign one from one set of rules into another. If that didn't work for them, they could have transitioned back and all the players would say, okay, sure, whatever, and keep moving. Yep. So don't be afraid to get meta. All right. Well, Dan, there are a lot of variant rules and additional mechanics that are littered throughout the source material, including rules on hex crawls in Tomb of Annihilation, ship combat rules and ghosts of saltmarsh, mechanics for tracking a relationship to a god in Mystic Odysseys of Theros, and rules for level progression for NPCs in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Before you go homebrewing a new mechanic, do you go diving into the source material to see what already exists? What tools, not including piracy, would you recommend to help people explore their options before they begin homebrewing?
0: Not including piracy. That doesn't mean I can't pull out Ghost of Saltmarsh?
2: Oh.
0: Um, (laughs) no, uh, the do i go to outside sources for uh random mechanics 110 percent i do um i and i i don't really limit it to 5e either um if if there is a fun intelligent weapon that existed in in second edition like i want the second edition black razor
2: no 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 dan before they go home brewing oh before they go home oh I,
0: yeah yeah I, I i do go to other source
2: Material, right um i i do you, check you go out, digging through the books
0: yeah well i mean i i do a google search and see if there is a book that has that and then i'll check it out because there are dozens of books at this point and honestly sometimes with how these things are edited the location of a weird mechanic is a bit odd so um i, I i'll google it first see where it is and then i'll find the paperback version and, and, and go to it and read it in depth but yeah i will um a hundred percent i will um but going to google uh, for finding out that kind of stuff is the best or reddit right both of those are great places to find any information on obscure mechanics you may need
2: brian do you rely on the community or or how do you find the rules instead of just flipping page by page to the dmg
1: I have not read. Okay.
2: (laughs) I have not read the DMG. Neither have we. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I have. I've read some snippets of it. I get my inspiration from source material other than games. Um, I was rereading the Percy Jackson series um, just for fun, just a quick read. And I was like, oh. This coin would be, you know, there's a coin in there that uh, basically teleports, or it's. Oh, I'm sorry, it was a pearl that teleports uh, someone, one, you know, one of the characters back to the material plane, as it would be called. And I said, wait a minute, that'd be really cool if we had a D and D esque thing. And okay, let me go see if there's there is one, and if there was one, okay, how can I make it better and make it a little bit more. Game fluid is yeah, my yeah. thing. I like where, making where things.
2: Go, where hmm? do you go to find out whether or not it exists?
1: Google or I, I try to look for, I try to look if there is something in every system. I almost, I go big picture down to the little picture. So I, I do a little bit of the of the reverse, but if there isn't something that's 99% of the time, I, the source material that I'm looking for specifically for my homebrew world is going to be things that I am gaining inspiration from and if it's out there cool then i won't have to do the work if it isn't out there then i roll up my sleeves and actually i this is weird i i almost ask the google gods that it doesn't exist because i that's i love doing this
2: yeah um yeah one of the things that uh that i do not really like about fifth edition but it's an incredibly useful tool right now Um, in this conversation for homebrewing is D&D Beyond. Absolutely. It is the cheapest way to get access to the source material and it's got search functions and you can add homebrew shit right into it, right? It's probably one of the best, um, one of the best tools out there. If you don't have a community to ask, or you don't have access to, google for some reason um you can whip out dnd beyond and and try to search and look through there um before you start going into into homebrewing as well um yeah. in the past yeah. that would have been nearly impossible because yep. DD has relied on magazines and third-party oh, publications yes. and an onslaught of official books to help keep the game fresh and exciting for old players who want new mechanics new player options and new settings fifth edition though seems to have shifted its focus to providing modular plug-and-play style games. Uh, they offer unearthed Arcana playtesting for new aspects of the game, and they are encouraging the idea that there is no right or wrong way to play D&D as long as everyone is having fun. Do you think that this shift in attitude is working for the betterment of the game, or do you think it's too open and therefore there's no consistency?
0: Um. Yes, 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 yes. I. I. Uh, the, the shift of attitude into ease of access for d d has been one of the best things 5e has brought to the game. I have had full, like, 12-hour sessions of Pathfinder where only, like, three hours of gameplay happened, and then there was a full nine hours of arguing about how to fucking grapple something, mm-hmm. right? Like, I... The openness of the design process as well has been really great for me as a DM to see kind of what the chain of thought is to reach the end goal that we get, right? So like we've seen with, especially with Tasha's, we get all of these cool new subclasses. We've seen them start from a message board post of, hey, what do you guys think of this idea to a design play test to a published subclass right and um some of them have worked really well others not i'm i'm looking at you clockwork Soul Soul, Soul, sorcerer
2: um but oh oh, you're super wrong on that dan i don't mind telling you that you're just (laughs) you never
0: you never mind when telling me i'm wrong on something but like there's there's um uh, yeah man the inclusivity of the game is amazing the one caveat is just a small gripe it is the fact that guys like me who've been playing this game for so long have had so many different rules and additions crammed into our brain that sometimes we get the rules mixed up even with it you know several years being embroiled in 5e i still will be like okay so what's your combat maneuver oh wait that's not a thing
2: right i'll ask them to. Uh, hey can, I can you all a knowledge check? I can't blame fifth edition for that. That is just the fact that there are too many editions of too many games. Yeah,
0: and, and I'm not blaming Five E for that. I'm blaming my own damn brain for not being able to put a box away forever. Um, so yeah, I I the inclusivity of the game is amazing and I love it and I like the direction they're going.
2: Brian, do you like this shift in attitude away from the onslaught of material to more loosey-goosey rules?
1: Absolutely. Because as a poor kid growing up, I did not have access to things because i couldn't afford it
2: yeah.
1: now with the age of the internet that has now merged with fifth edition i can realistically play dnd and have access to everything just based upon the internet and the kindness of the community sharing through the internet whether and you know whatever the plug plug and play may be and i create a lot of plug and play um materials on instagram because of the inclusivity of this community that's that's become a you know so integral fifth edition if you know if we shifted to the opposite i would be very sad
2: yeah i got to agree one of the big complaints that i see about fifth edition is the fact that you have to make up your own rules all the time because there's not a rule for everything Mm -hmm. and my response to that is always did you guys fucking play 3.5 where there was a rule for everything and they all contradicted so to make shit up anyway yeah like dan how many of those 12 hour sessions had you guys saying oh close enough with a rule just to move forward oh me
0: because i have a severe lack of patience issue um <laughs> yep. quite often um, just like But I think that was I, I common for everybody,
2: right? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't fucking. Reason- oh, I
0: pinned now. I pinned. Sure, fucking. Why not? Sure. Why? You got. The, oh, you got a weird prestige class that lets you just automatically pin and slit my throat. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm again. a big fan of this. This is this is so much better the way that they've designed this around rule sets instead of rules.
0: Can I just add one caveat? If there's one thing I miss from the glut of information we had it is the dungeon and dragon magazine from way, from 3.5 um and that was mostly because there was a monthly small like two session module that was official that came out that i would pull from in dungeon magazine and dragon magazine would be what a podcast now does for us today
2: yeah look i can spend less money at dm's guild to get that little two page module than i would mm-hmm. ever spend for 6 bucks on a on a magazine these mm-hmm. days Yeah, so I agree with you, Dan. It would be great to have that official um, publication. Well, it's official and then a little bit more balanced, right? Uh, just because it's gone through the ringer than DMs, in in theory, a (laughs) lot of it didn't. But, um, if Wizards of the Coast released a book about how to homebrew, what would chapter one of the book be about and why, Dan? Oh, uh,
0: what would chapter one of the book be? Uh, why? why you should be more comfortable with homebrewing as a dm and and why it should not be a uh perceived insurmountable uh peak to climb like i have met many a new dm go i'm not homebrewing anything i don't have time for that it is intimidating it's oppressive sometimes to be a homebrew uh dm and um Those are only looked as being bigger issues from the outside. Once you're in it, it's not nearly as daunting as it was before. So chapter one of a homebrewing book is going to be about why everybody should homebrew and has the freedom to do it. They're not beholden.
2: Ryan, what do you think chapter one should be?
1: I think chapter one should be a definition. What is homebrewing? What is, you know, what do we consider homebrewing and kind of have it in that logical, almost like a flow chart aspect, because we often homebrew without even thinking or knowing that we're homebrewing. As we, as you stated earlier, you know, we reskin things, we do that. That's technically homebrewing. Yep. If you're pulling something from, for example, I have pulled that in my world, the elves are immortal. Well, where do you think I pulled that from? Lord of the Rings. Well, if I didn't have to add anything else and I used everything official Wizards of the Coast, except for that part, I'm still a home brewer. So I would chapter one for me would be definition of what is a home brewer and examples of home brewing. And the different levels and scales of homebrewing. And even within that chapter, say, okay, if you're this, if you identify as this scale, go here. And again, flowchart.
2: Yeah. You mean like uh, like we're going to do gritty realism or we're going to do high fantasy? Or do you mean like tier one, tier two, tier three?
1: So I'm thinking more of if you are wanting to homebrew at the reskinning level. This is what you should, you know, go to this chapter, which will help you come up with ideas. Or if you're going to go to the most, you're going to create things from scratch, go here and just have fun with it. That's what I would, that's how I would have organized it.
2: So I think that I am in total agreement with the two of you. The only thing that I would add to that, I would match two of those together, but give permission to DMs to homebrew. Right. The open gaming license has been fantastic. The OGL is amazing for fifth edition. Um, I think that that should be freaking restated at the beginning of a homebrew book. And they should just tell you, hey, do this and this and this and this and this. You are allowed to do this. Tell people what the homebrew options are, right? And say, it's okay for you to do this. It is okay. Like you can sit there and talk about, well, if you want to build an NPC that's a level three, okay, great. That's one. Talk about ho- about reskinning. Talk about stealing inspiration from other places. Talk about mixing and matching from previous editions of Wizards of the Coast products, right? Like I think they should really lay that out for everybody and give you permission to do it. The entire idea of fifth edition is predicated upon the idea that the DM is running the show and can do whatever they want. And the DM is never wrong. And this is a problem with toxic DMing. So I think that if you're gonna do homebrewing, you need to address all that. Yeah. and say, hey, you can do this, and you don't have to be a dick about it. You sure. don't have to sneak it past your players. No. You can just create. You are one half of the design team of your personal game. We are the Thank first you. half. You are the second. So um, that being said, Dan, if there's a particularly egregious oversight in the basic rules, uh, do you can you point out one in uh, in 5th edition that you feel the need to homebrew? Are we talking specifically monster related or are we talking? Pick pick one thing that you just need to homebrew to fix fifth edition.
0: Uh, to fix fifth edition. Um, What's the first thing that, that hits you? Uh, oh, uh, dragons should cast spells. Here's one. Uh, actions should be transferable. This is an opinion of mine that you get from f- like things like Pathfinder. Um, a action and a bonus action and a move action um should kind of be backwards transferable and they kind of are with like the dash action you can take the dash action to get kind of two moves right but i i i wouldn't mind seeing things like if i wanted to pull out a potion and cast misty step right like i wanted to do two bonus actions well one of those is basically your action now because you're transferring that bonus action thing to be a standard all right there's my pathfinder to be an action uh in, in, in that equivalent, right. Or if you're standing still on a battlefield for a long time, remove the move action and just let you spend your move action to do a bonus or something. Right. Um, that's just
2: me. Brian, do you have any, anything that you would fix right off the top of your head?
1: Initiative orders. I would roll initiative. I would have a special hungry rule that's optional to re-roll initiative every round of combat, just the quick, let me see what it is. Why? Because now when the goblins went last and now they go first, the players get out of the meta, which again it's not bad, but they get out of the meta and they're like, ah, oh, crap. Now everything they have to really engage in the combat. They have to stay, you know, tuned with it. I think there's a lot of great benefits. And I've seen that in the Lord of the Rings Battle for Middle Earth uh, system. Yeah. That they rolled their initiative every at the start of every combat it doesn't take a lot of time but it definitely kept me on my feet
2: i really like that except that that's that could slow your game down if you had some online mechanic if you're going through roll 20 or whatnot and you said re-roll initiative you just click the button and poof there it is for everybody yeah uh, true. that would make things a lot more fun and dynamic i can just i know for myself dming okay who got between 25 and 20 who got between fifteen and and twenty? Yep. Who got, and it just slows it down. I love that idea. There's got to be a way to make it faster. That would have to be a part of the homebrew somehow. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, honestly, for me, I would go back to the drawing board on dark vision. Yep. Ooh. Yeah. 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 yeah you got it. Light and dark yeah. vision and whatnot need, and uh, I'm going to give a really good, long, hard look at the twilight domain cleric and clench my fists in fucking rage. And then I now sh- I'm going to move on.
1: <laughs> I just want a necromancer class.
2: You mean like a like a whole class is just necromancer with a bunch of different subclasses? I Because I, we have the necromancer I, wizard subclass, right?
1: Yeah, and it's weak. I just don't... I, I want a necromancer that like at level one, you're like, I'm a lich, I'm whatever. Like, I want to explore their journey of lichdom. But that's, again, that's not that's not a basic rule because there isn't that class just yet right
0: well i mean the best necromancers aren't necromancers they're clerics
1: but that's what i'm saying like i don't want to have to play a cleric to play necromancer i want to like level one start my journey of necromancy as a necromancer
0: um if i could add one more little thing that just spawned in my head training Training is a, is a homebrew thing I wouldn't mind throwing in. If your character uses that same skill over and over and over and over again for an entire campaign, even if you don't have proficiency, motherfucker, you get proficiency, right? Something yeah. like that. I, I would love to see some sort of training mechanic.
2: Hello, podcast people. Podcast people, we're recording. Yes, but it makes them sound like pod... People. We're recording. You're recording, Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you
0: listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back, or dig through the Campaign Builder or touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function.
2: New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah.
0: And delicious. The other thing we want to hey, mention...
2: Hey, you know what else is sloppy
0: but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, uh- The other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website.
2: There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel mugs. I could have
0: a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on.
2: How big are the mugs? I
0: don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one.
2: And a travel mug too jesus i need to look at this website more often
0: so please take a second to check out what we have to offer we really appreciate the donations we've received through the website but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling and we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. <laughs> There's even a little pin with the logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now, without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus, are three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously?
2: No. Homebrewing isn't always the best answer to a problem, which we've hinted at already, but sometimes it isn't even a good answer. Taken at face value, the overall design of D&D 5th Edition is fairly well balanced, with a focus on fun and player heroics already. Sure, you may feel the need to spruce things up a little bit if you want to explore an Egyptian or Norse feel, or finally get to experience kicking ass as Iron Man, but the more you fiddle with the system, the more you... Are likely to disrupt that system. The internet is full of horror stories about DMs who lock their players into gritty or punishing mechanics, or players who bring their precious character to the table just to show off a special new thing they invented. And of course, there are checks and limits in play to mitigate these issues as much as possible. For example, rules as written, there are no weapons, armors, or items that have more than a plus three modifier attached to them. Attunement slots keep the most powerful items from being stacked up on a single character, and the attunement times keep the characters from swapping the items in and out whenever they want. Experience points exist in this combat-heavy game of ours in order to give a general guideline of the speed at which a party should level. Bounded accuracy limits are in place to keep the game fair and interesting at all levels of play, Hit dice and proficiency modifiers are the basic principles at which power scaling progresses when leveling. Short and long rests are built into the setup of each character build based on a six to eight encounter adventuring day. And remember, that's not six to eight combats. That's six to eight encounters that may use up various resources. Yeah. There are a lot of rules for the game design and an even greater number of specific details When it comes to in-world lore that has been published, with over 110 subclasses that have been published and roughly the same number of racial options and background variants, there are literally millions of options out there in an already decently balanced system. So if you're going to homebrew, you should think about the scope of the impact your decisions will make. After all, adding a plus one helmet to boost armor class independently of a shield or piece of armor from the books probably won't be nearly as disruptive as adding a critical failure table that you found for free on Reddit. So first off, before we go any further, guys, let's roll initiative again. I want to know how you feel about crit tables in 5th edition. All right. I got it. I got it. I got a two.
0: I got I got that many.
1: I got a two as well.
2: Damn. Oh, it. We oh got off. Off I got a 14. I got another two.
1: Matty Fatty 1.
2: Really, oh, wow, okay, all right. So, um, I sucks. I'm love- sorry, man. Damn I, it, I love crit tables, I absolutely love them, but I really neuter them. They are not doing massive amounts of nuclear damage to the monsters on the table. You very rarely are lopping off limbs, and NPCs and monsters don't roll on them, only players do. If you crit fail on my table, you cannot die. As a matter of fact, you can't even take damage. You get a level of exhaustion, or you can't add your proficiency modifier to the next attack, or attacks against this monster, or something like that. It isn't until you start to stack these effects that people start to really feel it. But even then, in previous editions, or on most other crit tables I've seen, you crit fail three times in one encounter, you're fucked, you're dead. Roll up a new character. You have just died three times over, right? In mine, I mean, Dan, I think you crit failed seven or eight times in, in one, session. one session. Yeah. Yep. And you were just you needed a long rest and weren't getting it because you were just taking level after level after level of exhaustion and and pain. Your movements.
0: Yeah. None of my proficiency modifiers were around, none of my ability modifiers were around.
2: So you but ultimately at the end, you were just rolling straight dice and you still had access to all of your stuff and you weren't losing health points right the only time that anyone has ever been damaged anyone of the players has ever been damaged by a crit table has been in player versus player mode where someone crits and then lops off a a part of a, a monster's leg but it happens to be a player character now
1: i don't mean to interject but could you explain what a crit table is for the listeners
2: So a crit table is when you roll a critical, you get a uh, 20 on Mm -hmm. the die. This is specifically for attacks only. Um, You will then get to roll on another table of a set number of items on there. It's usually 10, 12, or 20, one of the bigger dice, right? So you roll again and find an additional bonus that you would get based on the idea that that you have rolled so well that you are so good at this that you um, have beaten all the odds and you get to do this cool thing like um, disarm the opponent as you hit them or um, knock them prone or whatever it is. Unfortunately, a lot of people like to say, oh, you kill that guy and the guy beside him or you do 7d8 extra fire damage in a burst for a 10-foot race. They can be these really cool anime-level effects (laughs) <laughs> which are totally fucking impractical in D&D, yep. and you end up destroying half of your party. This becomes even worse on critical failure tables where you roll a one and you then get punished for it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. So, um, and of course, the worse you roll on a critical failure table, the worse the punishment gets. Yep. The better you roll on a crick table, the more impactful and better the boom becomes. Yeah. So it's really difficult for a lot of people to, uh, to balance these. Um, you know what, I'm going to go on Reddit and I'm going to post my crit tables. I'm going to go onto our subreddit and post them there so that people can oh. see, um, you can go to r slash it's a mimic, um, to, to check that out. I'll do that when this episode drops note to no. Self. So, um, Dan, you are next. How do you feel about crit tables? Uh, I really do
0: like them. And I really do like the fact that, um, or, or sorry, I really agree with you that they should not be these large scale anime, like you touch a guy and he explodes into a million pieces and the shards of bone as uh rapiding out from his body per like perforate the crowd behind him. No, that I, I don't like that level of stuff. Stuff that is minor hindrances adds a little bit of like rule of cool with the attack, gives that little oomph is great. However, if you're just doing crit tables and not crit failure tables, you're doing yourself a a disservice, and vice versa. If you're just doing crit failure but not crit tables, you're doing yourself. They go hand in hand. You need both of them. Brian, how do you feel about them?
1: I like them. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I think they should all be balanced. Whether it's a critical, can kind of like what we were saying earlier. We don't want some epic anime level, like you know, season five My Hero Academia. Deku goes and he blasts the shit out of this one opponent. You know, you don't want that. But what you do want is, like you said, oh, you disarm the opponent or now you're disarmed. Okay, it's not that one, maybe second or whatever, six seconds can affect the action of like, oh, well, they disarmed me. I'm going to take my action to pick up the weapon. Okay. But it's not something where it's like now they're penalized for it. I I think that for folks out there who are homebrewing a crit table that really harshly penalizes the player, I'd stay away. I don't like that. I like it to be just balanced. Yeah. So I'm for crit tables as long as they're balanced.
2: All right, let's go in reverse order on initiative because I'm tired of talking. Um, What has been the most broken or ill-advised instance of homebrewing that you've personally witnessed, Brian?
1: Oh, where should I begin? Um, There's so
2: many options.
1: (laughs) The thing is this. I've seen the, I've seen circumstances where folks have said, hey, you can do whatever you want. And I've said that before. You can do whatever you want. But there's a caveat. I've always said there is a quote from the show once upon a time. I believe it is that it was the old ABC, like Disney characters in real life, all that stuff.
2: It's funny, about a month ago, Dan and I were walking around the old set where they used to film that. Yeah, it it
0: was filmed purely
2: here in Vancouver, so
0: like, okay, we went well to like, Steve awesome. to walk down, and like, that's where the clock tower was, and that's where that is, and good friends of ours got married in uh, Fort Langley City Hall, which is a, uh, or rather that's Langley cool. City Hall, Langley, Fort Langley, different places, um, but uh, it's like this old style, like estate, it's great. And oh my it was gosh, I love that. prominently in the, in the show. Yeah. I played Warhammer 40 K with the kid from that show. So. What? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's
1: a different, that's a different episode. <laughs> Cause that's awesome. Um, honestly, I've, I've in my world and, and just my theory, my philosophy is everything has a price, right? And that's kind of like what Rumpelstiltskin said, everything has a price. So in this regard, th- when you do not, have a price or a balance to your home brewing and just let it become chaotic, then I would, you know, anyone who advises you that I would go against it. I would say, don't follow those individuals who say, do whatever you want. No rules, you know, blah, 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 blah. I just, I think that leads to what we discussed um, in other instances of, hey, this goes against the lore or this goes against this when you just have that open reign.
0: Yeah. Um, What has been for me the most broken and ill-advised instance of homebrewing? I had a guy who let the Druid shape change into anything regardless of type, just was dependent on CR. Um, Which, I mean, a quarter CR Pixie doesn't exactly match a quarter CR uh, Weasel. Right, like it's yeah. Um, th- those one has improved invisibility and one smells things really well. <laughs> so, uh, again, exactly like you said,
2: it's all about balance. I would have to say the most ill-advised instance of home brewing that I have seen is probably some weird outlier from a very specific game from ten years ago. Mm. But the most common misstep that I see, I'm going to circle back to crit tables for a second. Stop making them break their weapons when they crit fail. Yeah, yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ! You 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 have not only punished them; well, a single D twenty roll has punished them for the next what, half a quest. Stop that! Yep. Just stop it. it. I am all for fucking with people's items. We have a whole episode about attacking the character sheet, uh, where where we talk about that in depth. But my God, don't just break them on a on a chance roll, even if it's. Uh, the one on the crit table so you have a 1 in 400 chance of hitting it believe me your players will find that chance and they will get it and it will be some ancestral sword or oh no wait i was going to use my dagger on that one because i don't want to no fuck it just remove that shit it's unnecessarily complicated and punishing
1: do you mind if i add something to that really quick sure should be applied also to crossbows Flint locks, whatever, if you use gunpowder in your home, whatever it may be, I think that same rule that you just mentioned should extend to that, not only from a historical point of view, but even like a modern point of view of like, okay, if something is made well, it won't, it will malfunction to an extent, right? But there are
2: already malfunction rules for exactly. We don't need to add that shit as a punishment.
1: yes you don't have to punish your players for that that's a no-no
2: in my book if you want to jam the crossbow for 1d4 rounds that's fine you haven't derailed the quest correct Don't break it anyway clearly the big issue here is that people um are having problems maintaining balance at the table right um but there's a lot of different kinds of balance issues and not everyone is always aware of all the balance issues so i'm going to run through them really quickly. These are all the ones that I could come up with over the span of a beer. So um, there's the obvious problem of balancing within the party where one party member has become more powerful than the others. Then there's the balancing issue of the party level versus the monsters and enemies that they're meant to be opposing. There are balance issues with skills and difficulty classes, especially as players begin to min-max against the recommended numerical values of the DCs in the published adventures. For example, a rogue with expertise in sleight of hand at level three will be able to easily bypass the sleight of hand check with a DC of 16, which is designed to be moderately difficult within, I don't know, Dragon Heist or something, right? They're just going to waltz over that shit. One of the often overlooked balance issues of 5th edition is between the three pillars, combat, exploration, and role-playing. Most people tend to focus on the combat pillar, and when new spells, abilities, and items come into play, they tend to be based around combat, shifting the spotlight even farther away from exploration or role-playing. Interestingly, Wizards of the Coast also tends to focus on combat and battle with a lot of their character design and spell lists, so there are quite a few examples of combat balance within that pillar itself. But when it comes to exploration encounters or social encounters, a new speller item might seem harmless at first, but may end up completely upending an entire pillar. I think we talked a few episodes, um, Dan, uh, ago about when we were doing our midweek, we talked at length about an item that I had homebrewed into the world, um, which allowed you to auto-succeed on persuasion checks. Didn't think it was going to be an issue. It derailed three, it, it just nuked three whole sessions that I was, yeah. I was trying to kick off. Um, and And th- that's a great example of, of what I'm talking about there. One of the major balance issues that 5th edition is criticized about is the poor economy for spending gold, buying and selling items, and maintaining upkeep for adventuring. Adding a new kind of gem, tweaking the price or cost of items, or making a rare spell component suddenly available could have unforeseen consequences that could tip the scales of downtime, uh, buying potions, or access to gear. Then, There's the problem with balancing around power creep. If your level five fighter already has a plus three greatsword, what are you going to be giving them when they're level 15? And finally, there's the challenge of balancing spectacle creep, which is when your party has been given the homebrew items to kill the homebrew god in the homebrew city from their homebrew airship with their homebrew spells to save the homebrew world. And now they're level 12 in love with their characters and wondering what comes next. So let's grab our dice again. How do you, as a DM, handle keeping the balance between party members, specifically when it comes to handing out homebrew items, spells, or abilities? A 13.
1: 19. Final. Uh,
2: I got a 4. All right, Brian, you're up. So, specifically inter-party balancing.
1: Okay. So, specifically inter-party balancing, making sure that the, if I'm understanding this correctly, making sure that the party members... Are balanced. One is not more powerful than the other. Yeah. Right. Well, what I typically do is I keep at the center of what they're here for. It is a collaborative storytelling game. I don't want someone to tell their story more than another person. That's how I think about it. So the way I balance that is okay, each player is going to, pro- or each party member is going to progress together right? There's going to be certain things, for example, if the cleric um, has a healing spell, right? In my world, the, the question that has been asked to my players or that I've been I've asked them is, okay, if you use that healing spell, where do you think that magic's coming from? It's not free. Again, I, I balance this. So then they think, oh, if I'm going to cast a healing spell, if I'm going to cast a big healing spell, I need to reconsider things. Same thing with an ability, okay? Like, like you stated earlier about the fighter with a plus three great sword. Okay. Well, I, I give the players choice and I leave it in their hands. Basically it's not like peer pressure, but more of like, Hey, if you, if you do this, remember you're going to be chased down by the NPCs, or you're going to draw attention to yourself. Something is going to happen. It's not a negative, a positive Consequence. It's a neutral action, right? It's for every action, there's a pot, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's how I I I balance everything. Spells, abilities, items, and especially the party members. They know if they do something, it's gonna tip the scale and they have to suffer the consequences
0: for it. Dan. Uh so for me, how do I handle the balance between players? I pay attention. Um, I I I if if one guy's getting a bit like if i've given an item that is too powerful and i'm seeing that's too powerful then then i mean i've i've got to make steps because you definitely don't want to overcome a over powerful item by giving equally as overpowered items to other players because then because then you're hooped so uh what i do is i i pay attention and i um i'm, I'm a lot like you brian like i i will play to a player Like this encounter is kind of focused on this player. And then the next encounter just kind of focused on that player. And that like, it's not that the other players aren't uh, capable or can't become the star of that encounter, but when I'm designing the encounters, I'm designing them with these specific players in mind so that when it comes to uh, an encounter, that's not quite their turn. um, They don't
2: overshadow everybody. Right. Mm. Um. Honestly, I just use really small magic items. Mm -hmm. Dan, you see this all the time. I use such like, oh, hey, you know what? The most important item, magic item that you are going to get for the next three levels is a little stone trinket that looks like a small wooden stool. And when you put it down, you say the magic word, it becomes a full wooden stool. You can sit on it whenever you want. Full of flavor, mechanically relatively useless. Have an imagination, use it how you want. I try not to hand out plus one plus anything items. Mm-hmm. I, I look—we're balanced enough. I'm going to give you the ability to cast a cantrip when you don't normally have access to it by using this one-off item that that burns up when it's done. Right. That's oh, that's another thing that I do. Everything has charges. When the charges mm-hmm. are done, you don't get to use it anymore. So balance. Priority. May I inter-
1: interject really quick? Yeah. Um. I, I love that idea. And to add to that, as an example, if a player receives a plus one sword, guess not that my world's low fantasy, but wait a minute, you got a plus one sword. I can physically see an aura coming down when you use that sword. Now there's people chasing you because they want that sword mm. or they've been, you, someone's got a hit on them. So again, I, it's that balance. And that's yeah. why I use balance because like you said, you got balance. that magic item people
0: are watching yeah it's about balance and consequence and consequence has two two ends
2: all right okay so let's talk about magic items for a second then uh, specifically magic weapons Mm -hmm. when these additional items and boons come into games how do you adapt for monsters and combat encounters considering that fifth edition is designed to be played without magic items Hmm. do you tweak the monsters from the monster manual absolutely yeah
1: absolutely Absolutely, I or I just take monsters and things from other source material, like I like you know, um, like I've stated. Gosh, I don't know how many times I stated in, in my my career of D and I'm you know I take and tweak or I create you know whatever. I absolutely will will fix will um alter it. Excuse me.
2: Will you just add an additional monster or will you change the number of attacks or what's your go to method?
1: So depending on the level, um, an actual, a great example is I use a lot of goblins. I love goblins. I love the idea of at level one to four, one to five storming my players with a bunch of goblins, but they're smart and they're tactical. And if they notice that someone is casting some sort of magic spell That all those goblins now turn towards that person and start bombarding them with attacks. If they have archers, they will just and I've seen what it's done to the players where they're like, wait a minute, this isn't a video game or a norm or a game. This is they're being tactical. You know, these NPCs are actually being tactical. So I will throw that in there. I might throw in an extra action or two. I might throw in You know, if you have creeped on my Instagram, you'll see certain magic items that have like a cool um, saying like, oh, death and glory, kind of again, kind of like a video game. And that's an ability, death and glory. And it does this, this, this and that I might add that to a monster just to make it. I always want my players to feel um, wowed. I don't want them to be like, oh, I know that this is a goblin and they have X amount of HP. Yeah. i want to say oh this is a goblin that oh this is cool like they're doing it's something unique or whatever it may be um so yeah i constantly tweak or add or subtract or even just alter a hair of something i i do a hybrid approach
0: dan what about you oh i'll throw an extra monster in um, or or give it more hit points or um like if if this is an item that is around for a while I might just generally assume that the party is that much higher of a CR when I'm planning encounters.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same way. Look, I agree with Brian for absolutely everything for my big scary NPCs or my set piece encounters. But mm-hmm. if I'm rolling especially a random encounter off a table and I look at it and I go, oh, this is supposed to be, you know, four goblins that they're fighting, but these guys are level three. Fuck it, they've got max hit points. Yep. Right. And I, I try not to put too much additional taxation on myself um, when it comes to those kind of decisions, especially if it's a random table and I'm in the moment. I don't like to stop gameplay and say, hold on, I got to rebalance this. But when I'm planning my encounters out, and I go, okay, there's a there's a freaking beholder around the corner there and it has a history. Yeah, I'll give it some new, interesting, weird things. This is not your average beholder.
1: It almost seems like depending on how much time you're going to be Invested in this, right? If it's a, if it's a goblin encounter of like you said, four goblins, and it's going to be something that the players can just trash through, yeah. Minor. If it's a beholder with history and lore and huge role play, you know, backing, which again, that's that's me. I role play, role play, role play all day. Yeah, you're going to add extra things, is what I'm hearing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the more of a spotlight, the more homebrew it gets.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
2: When it comes to homebrewing around ability saves, modifiers, and skill checks, do you guys have any advice for new DMs? Because that's outside of combat now, um, in theory. I mean, maybe not saves, but it's a little bit different because of the bounded accuracy and what's considered difficult and what isn't and who gets what boons. Bards and rogues will frustrate the shit out of you, right? And how many people are rolling history checks? How often, right? True. What does a survival check actually do? Is a question. Like, there's a lot of homebrewing there. I know people have made up their own skills. Um, do you guys have any any advice?
1: I mean, it goes into the same line of just borrowing, right? Um, you mentioned the survival check. The way I would actually run that, if you know, if I were to ask a survival check, I'd say, I want you to roll a survival check because you are now in a swamp area that Borrowing from the Lord of the Rings, the um, Adventures in Middle-Earth supplement, swamp areas and things of that are considered difficult terrain. Yeah. And depending upon your race and your class, it's even worse. So, okay, you're in a swamp. Survive. I want a survival check because you're in a swamp that you have no clue what it's about and what's in there. You don't know if there's some sort of like bayou, like alligator Creature just lurking.
2: up to your chin walking through murky water,
1: exactly as
2: opposed to a Goliath who's traipsing around, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Or, you know, you, you don't know if there's gonna be um, a creature, maybe there's an NPC, uh a frog playing a banjo, you know, a frog bard playing a banjo on in the swamp. I don't know, you know, I mean, you know, you never know, but that's what I'm saying, like, you know, w- besides the Muppet. Uh, segue uh, that yeah, I was going went go, into
0: a frog with banjos complaining about colors yeah I mean,
1: um. yeah like i'm just not um well i was you know kermit the frog because i was like oh rainbow whatever but again my mind is off anyway i would that's how i would alter things that's i would absolutely alter the skill saves modifiers you have it to your world that would be my first number one advice cater it to you make it easy for you the dungeon master because you have so much work anyway why make it more difficult
0: and 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 for me like you don't necessarily need to mess with the numbers the advantage system exists for a reason and you don't have to change the dcs mess around with the advantage system if you need to right? yeah
2: look, if i'm i'm 100 the same way when it comes to ability saves and modifiers skills, I'll give you a bonus item every once in a while, but I'll give it to one of the ones that nobody uses, like a plus two to our Connor checks, right? And I'll give it to the rogue, but man, I'm not going to give you more, like an advantage on saves until you're in tier three, and then you will get a plus one to one thing, right? I'm not going to the more you fuck with the math, the more the math will fuck with you. Yep. There it is, which is why I agree with Dan 100% advantage. is One of the things that I do when I hand out Homebrew loot is focus on the exploration or role playing pillars of the game is there a specific part of either of those pillars that you feel could really benefit from a homebrew item or a spell or a rule of some sort
1: i per i'm for me it's always role play exploration combat those are the my that's the order of pillars that I take yeah so I'm going to be speaking from a role play perspective I believe that when you or giving out loot. I don't I don't like the idea of, give, of giving high-leveled or really powerful magic items to the players um in the first tier, you know, or second tier of play. I just don't think you should even do that. Why? Because from a role play perspective, you now one have to dump a bunch of lore, and now your players are kind of like scatterbrain, is this what I've noticed. But more importantly, and this is where I think it insults the players to give some loot that now the role play focus of it is, oh, look at me. I have this cool sword versus this sword is from an ancient war that's been passed down from generation to generation, and it was hung up on the mantle of my parents' home, right? That magic item is just a normal sword. but you as a character can say yeah this sword has just been up in my house and then you start to reveal because in the way i would think about it and how i would do it npcs start to notice that sword basic sword no pluses nothing oh you have the sword of you know a Thrandil. that sword was we saw that sword and the wielder of that sword led many into, you know what I'm saying? Like you can role play that and have a huge lore drop with just a basic sword. So I think by giving out loot that f- focuses on that role play, but making sure it's really balanced, yep. that's going to be more beneficial than oh, I'm going to give you a plus three sword. And yeah, I can you know i can add a little bit of mystery to it of who who you know who owned it or oh npcs are after you but i think that's a bit insulting to the to the player who can have that their 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 parent's sword that has a huge amount of lore i i, I don't know that's just my opinion yeah, yeah.
0: Exploring over a grid pisses the hell out of me, and um, we've talked about it before. But Mm -hmm. having an overland level uh, of homebrew rule to uh, tackle that would be nice. Um, And I've I've got one in my world that helps fix that, right? And uh, Adam, you've added like little knots or notches on maps to say it is this many days from this spot to this spot by, and and like you've set a standard, right? And stuff like that are the things that. Um, I would homebrew into the world to work your way around these more ambiguous mechanics that they've had.
2: Yeah. When it comes to loot for me, honestly, it, again, I, I look to. it's so easy for you to have uh, an item that just replicates a spell that makes you go, you know, pass without a trace or um, friends or whatever. And it's a one-off use. And that's, that's what I feel like a lot of these role-playing and, um, exploration pillar level items uh, tend to focus on is oh there's a spell that already does this i always want to see something that's a little bit different if i'm talking to a new dm mm-hmm. i'm sitting there thinking about um give an item that is going to let the character in that is based around exploration your ranger your druid your scout rogue you let them have a small bonus. The rest of the party doesn't get it. This is not a magical thing. They just get the they get snowshoes in the Tundra. Nobody else has them. They chose this character to be exploration-based, so let them do that. They're already sacrificing a little bit of combat for it. The Bard, and in the exact opposite way, the Rogue, have both chosen their, their class, probably the Paladin too, based on role-playing decisions that they've made, lean into it. Give the rogue the ability to disguise a little bit more. Just give them like a plus one to their disguise kit checks. It is going to come up never, like once every 10 sessions. You have not unbalanced your game at all, but you've made them feel a little bit more special around the character that they chose to play in the first place. And it's not that hard to to look at the archetypes that your players want to lean into and give them the non-combat bonuses Beyond just the plus one item of whatever, or hey, you can now cast entangle so mm-hmm. that you're con- you're doing battlefield control for exploration, or hey, you fly, fuck, do I hate items that give you fly? Oh my God, that just drives me up the fucking wall. So what do you guys think is one part of the exploration or role playing pillars that people should absolutely not mess with? Is there anything that's already perfect and should be left alone?
1: Again, being such a big promoter of role play one thing that I think should not be messed with is the player who wants to role play a specific way. This is a little bit odd in in the sense of we often hear that, but do we often enforce it? And this comes from a skill check, an ability check, things of that nature. Um, And my biggest thing is as a dungeon master, we're talking about Balancing, we're talking about all this. I haven't, I, I've, and this is, could possibly be from an experience of I was playing Pathfinder. Um, and I had another player tell another player how to use their skill checks, how to use their ability. They were telling them how to play the game.
2: I have, I have two methods of dealing with that. One is as a dungeon master, I will throw shit at whoever's doing that and say, no coaching.
1: Yeah. And, and I was a player and- at the time, too.
2: Yeah, and Terry has um, one of the best ways of handling this as a player, and that is turning around and and f- in a friendly, teasing manner, look them square in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I'm having fun wrong. And that is enough to stop everything. Yeah.
1: And that's what kind of had to happen. And the individual, I mean, it was, again, long story short, um, the... For me, that's what should not be messed with in the regards of exploration and role-playing. That pillar is specifically with role-play, don't try to change anyone's way of exploring, right? Or role-play. If they find exploration to be, I want to go to a library and read about the world, let it be. If you want to role-play by having a, you know XYZ factors, a voice, um, whatever, do it don't you know don't change how you express yourself and interact with the world biggest thing i wouldn't change
0: yeah uh for me uh i i agree with both of you on that one like the like the established numbers the established way they have things going i i i'm i'm okay with it it's there are certain ambiguities that i would attack it, but where they are clearly and def, clear and defined i i there's no need right
2: Yeah, look, if I can be honest, the one thing that I don't think anyone should ever mess with because it's hard to balance um, when it comes to uh, exploration and some classes and subclasses are already built around Mm. accommodating an imbalance is movement speed. When you start handing out boots of, you know, plus 10 feet or now you can jump or how you can fly or now you can swim at three times the, you are messing with the encounter design. And the balance compared to other things. Look, True. if a wizard can move an extra five feet around, that doesn't really matter that much. If a barbarian can, that matters a lot, right? The moment, and oh my God, never, ever, ever, I should have said this from the very beginning in a homebrew episode. Never, ever, ever use the word double or triple or yeah. half, <laughs> right? This is when you are going to start getting shit just fly off the handle, yeah. right? You're always adding one increment or subtracting one increment do not double triple or half because at that point you are going to oh you half the the hit points of a goblin because you rolled well on the crit table great you know what it means when you half the hit points of a dragon Yep, right this is going to get out of control quickly you double your movement yeah that means nothing for a dwarven cleric that means everything for a Have for an elven monk, a wood elf monk, right? Like, oh my god, or a an ara that can fly fifty feet around already? Like, don't don't jump into that. So, um, have you guys ever tried to mess with the economy or monetary aspect of the game?
1: Ironically, yes, because I work for a bank. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like how'd it go? Well, actually, because I basically restricted certain things. I said, in a real economy, there are you know there is a limitation. We're dealing with gold, silver, copper, you know, finite things that can only be mined x amount of times, right? Um, in my world, platinum is only used from, for major or big nations. It's big transactions. So if a player sees platinum in the world, that's like, "Oh, this is money that's been stolen from a bank or a king, queen, and whatever vault. Yeah. shit like which is kind of like it, it's either dirty money or it's something that contraband.
2: Somehow, somehow there's, there's a story behind this going
1: there's on. a story behind it yeah um and it also the money reflects the rarity in my world um if you notice in anything that i ever post i never put rarity because most of the items i create are based upon value right a plus one sword isn't gonna be 50 gold It's going to be like a thousand gold minimum. And that's just, you know, the service of putting a plus one to a sword. Yeah. Not the material cost.
2: Brian, do you fuck around with Electrum at all?
1: Electrum, I will honestly say I have never brought it up. My players have, and it's made me think that if they've been bringing it up, maybe they want me to have it more in my game.
2: Yeah. Dan, do you bother with Electrum? Not at all. It doesn't no,
0: exist. Watch that noise. But like yeah, I don't it, And it's as As someone who is Canadian and, and follows the metric system, it, it it causes me to twitch because it's that little half value that I'm like, no, man, everything's a, a divisible by 10. Let's just go on with that. It's easy. Uh, yes. It's nice to explain yes. why do you have that Electrum in there? It makes no sense. Um, as an aside, that is the way I mess up the uh, economy of my games on purpose. Ooh, nice. Um, I am incredibly guilty of being like, oh man, my party's level two. Have 5,000 copper, right? And, and then you do the math in your head and you're like, wait, no, that's way more than I oh. thought it was going to be for that party, right? Like, oh, and yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm also the type of DM where I like rewarding my players. So I like like giving them just a stack of gems and stuff. And like filling up these grand spaces with gems and, and gold. And then when I give it to them, they count it. And I'm like, okay, well, now you're the wealthiest people on the continent. Well, level three.
1: I was going to say that's actually hilarious that you mentioned that because right now, my new group of level three adventurers have a shit ton of gold that they received for arms dealing that they didn't oh. know they were dealing in arms. They were just transporting it because there's a war happening. So a bunch of level threes with a bunch of gold dealing arms. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah,
0: don't spend this all in one place because people are paying attention. Yeah.
1: And that's why I do it. So the players that are listening to this episode, ye be warned. <laughs> and that's how I run it.
2: Uh, I've, uh, I've tried to mess with the monetary and economy. I've come up with trade routes and, and, and like tariffs and taxes and stuff i've discovered the players don't give a shit yeah my players could not give less of a shit about math they're doing enough math trying to add modifiers to to dice they don't want to have to sit there and figure out which uh which trade route should we send which ship to and like no they don't care and honestly i keep it simple it's essentially one for one gold trading if you're in a city Mm -hmm. and then i i half it um if you're in a a town. If you're trying to sell something uh rare in a town, they just don't have the money to buy it. Yep. Or you're going to just get like a fraction of what the thing is worth. Yep. All right. I always neuter the economy because it gets out of control by level eight. Yeah. Um, but then I find out that these guys want to buy plate mail. I'm like, well, okay. So here comes a stash. When I know they want to buy a thing, I give them the money for it or the opportunity to get the money, or mm-hmm. they can always barter. And I love bartering. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I mentioned like okay, we've all talked about this idea of these um these giving this too much money now to a low level party. Do you worry about power creep or spectacle creep balancing when you look at home brewing? Or is this a problem for a future version of you to worry about?
1: I worry it in the future.
2: Yeah, Dan. I'm 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 aware of it, but I have no idea how to control it sometimes. (laughs) Um, I like it gets away from
0: up. me real quick. Like I'm like, here's a new shiny thing. And then <laughs> at the end of the session, I'm like, why did I give them the shiny thing? Oh
2: ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I am very, very aware of power creep and spectacle creep. And um I like to start off with a bang and then I like to slow things down. I, I control my pacing. I use rests and downtime to then go back to the base level so no. I can ramp up the power creep again from there. I will um, give the players a whole bunch of cool shit and then a bunch of NPCs who need that shit later on, right? I'm consistently trying to do the rebalancing act over and over and over again. And I'm happy to say my players never do what I think they're going to in this downtime or rebalancing or with their NPCs. If I say, hey, you know what? There's this guy over here who is a master swordsman with a rapier. He will fight beside you and here's a rapier. The rogue will say, "Oh cool, a free rapier and ignore the n p c like that happens to me all of the time, but that's okay because now the n p c can get butt hurt and disappear, and I don't have to worry about adding an extra person to the battle map right like there's always a uh, yeah. an upside and a downside to uh to balancing power creep, but it is a constant juggle for me yeah mm. i have i only operate in long term games I don't think I would give two shits about it in one of the um, tales from the yawning portal. Oh yeah, or no. Or no. If, if if
0: if the campaign's anything less than five games, mm-hmm. I don't give a crap. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, when you guys discover that things have gone completely off the rails, how do you dial it back and try to find the appropriate level of balance without completely just undoing the homebrew? Well,
1: it's usually for me. I've had some players go off the rails for sure first group my or the group that was in my world during the age of heroes um decided to fastball special their own player or their own party member kill this vampire lord and essentially like just do some off the rail shit right but now the consequences of their actions are quite literally in this camp in this current season of my game because again my campaign my work, my yeah, my campaign has been going on for five years continuously, no breaks or anything. So when they do something off the rails, I tie it back um, by there being a not a not a consequence, but more of like a well, this cause and effect. When yeah. my players, when, when when these players did some ridiculous bullshit, well, it caused an effect that now the the player the current players. Are dealing with yeah so i bring that cause and effect into it and it doesn't ruin my homebrew on the contrary it actually adds to it
0: yeah yeah and, and i'm i'm the exact same way like there's one of three things and i usually do all three um there's either you add consequence right i might have given you a bunch of gold but now I, I, just, I have justified a reason why i get that gold was there and now people are paying attention to big spenders right um there's hitting the brakes and being like, you guys are about to hit a season where you're not going to be getting as many items just to kind of ease that curve and flatten the curve out. We've all been living during COVID flatten the curve. You can do it in your games too. Um, and the third thing is put them in situations where they're not going to be spending that money for a long time, extended dungeon crawls, gallivanting through a jungle or a desert or something where they're out for long periods of time without any sort of way to hit a market right um that's that's what i'll do right is is give them spaces of time where those item, and if it's a really powerful item i've given them all right well there's going to be a space of time where you're not going to be able to really use that to its fullness right so it's just mitigating timing
2: really yeah for me when it comes to imbalances and whatnot i'm uh i'm going to look at the character sheet uh, we've talked in the past about attacking the character sheet we had a whole episode about it um, I will do that. If you ended up somehow falling ass backwards into a plus two shield and your AC with your half plate is now 22 and boy, man, we're still fighting kobolds. Fine, fine, fine. We are going to have it so that you having a shield on your person is a poor idea. Uh, disadvantage on swim checks. We're in water now, right? I'm going to remove you from wanting to do that. If you want to use it, you go nuts you're gonna you're gonna pay for it in other ways and i will look to the character sheet on how to how to do that if you want to hey you know you got this really cool shield and, and your paladin or an eldritch knight that's great do you have a free hand to cast spells there is always that balance that you can look at uh, when you take a step back as a dm and say hey look there are more than just the mechanical boons what are the things hey you got this awesome new piece of, um, of hey, it's a cloak that billows whenever you speak to make you look dramatic. Dan loves the cloak of billowing, right? It's phenomenal. That's great. Those Bullywugs are superstitious and they need that cloak right now. And you are going to be stalked. There will be no more rests because they will be always interrupted by Bullywugs until that cloak goes away.
1: Or even better, who's, did you steal that shield or cloak? is that stolen good like i mean i i know that's kind of off but like where's that magic item come from if or if you use that cloak does it call attention or if you use that shield did it call attention and now people think wait a minute that shield was from the champion of you know assume uh, of a um, uh, sailor. no
2: no magic item ends up in a chest in the bottom of a dungeon by accident exactly so if you guys have some insights on
0: um you listeners have in some insights on some uh, homebrewing tactics. You have some fun stories about how homebrewing has worked inside your campaigns. You can always reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Or if you have some more questions, you can send them to our email at info@it'samimic.com. mimic.com. Any questions you do send us, we'll get added to our mailbags, which will come out to you guys uh, once a quarter. Give or take. Give or take. Brian let's use this opportunity, pitch your shit.
1: Awesome. So, um, well, the Bearded Nerd, uh, under the Bearded Nerd Media, has always been a place for world building, homebrewing, and that nature. So the best, some of the best ways you can find me are on Instagram as the Bearded Nerd Media. You can find me on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Twitch. I will be um, recasting the the world building wednesday stream that i do wednesday Ooh, nights yeah, where awesome. we world build um and you can obviously find me on the bearded nerd podcast where we talk about a lot of different world building tips and tricks that you can implement but feel free to contact me on instagram um you can contact me there or on um, well my emails on instagram better just go to instagram account and you'll <laughs> find everything
2: do you want to tell people where they can find your podcast
1: You can find the Bearded Nerd podcast on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much all the major podcast uh, platforms and apps. Cool.
2: All right. So, I mean, you're all about world building then, Brian. Look, let's talk about it for a quick second. The homebrew world building. One Mm. of the most attractive parts of being a DM is creating a story for your players to walk through. And a lot of that time, that means digging into some world building. I personally love world building. And I know that Dan is super passionate about it as well. Oh, yeah. In fact, we have a series called Campaign Builder, which is currently on hiatus, but will be returning soon, I promise. <laughs> it focuses on different aspects of building a campaign and overall plot by focusing on world building and using dynamic encounters that a homebrew world may offer up. But let's try to condense it as much as possible for now and hit the broad strokes for new homebrewers. Let's try to do this uh, rapid fire, lightning round. Lightning I'm round to- for one piece of advice that you would give to someone new about creating different aspects of a campaign from scratch. So I've okay. got a list of different subjects here. I think there are six of them. Uh, and I'm looking for an insight, a warning, a design suggestion, or a very quick lightning round personal anecdote that taught you something important about homebrewing this topic. Okay. Let's roll initiative. And then I'll start the questions. Four. Eight one damn. Um, all right. Use that so crit table. table. So the first one is Brian, mm. gods, pantheons, and or warlock patrons. What is one thing that a new DM should know?
1: Treat when you are creating or using or whatever, altering homebrewing gods, pantheons, and and/or warlock patrons, you really need to consider and play them as you would want right role play them don't just say oh it's zeus and shoots lightning bolts no role play them think about put yourself in the mind of that character and role play it that way you know there's
2: still characters right there's still npcs
1: exactly god of mischief be mischievous god of love well
2: you know hump dan's leg yeah 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 your god of loves a chihuahua (laughs) hey you know what (laughs) (laughs)
0: anyways uh for me uh i got this from brandon sanderson who did a big world building thing um and he said set rules even though they're gods even though they're patrons uh they have a rule set they have to follow so set a series of rules that they have to follow
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and look it comes down to honestly when i look at gods and pantheons and warlock patrons I look at what their shtick is. What is their for for gods and pantheons? What domains do they yeah. um, do? They have some sort of uh, dominion over. That is going to really guide you on every decision you make. And warlock patrons will have not necessarily a domain, but goals. Yeah. They're yeah. they're giving they're giving their powers for a reason. Know why yeah. these gods, pantheons, or warlock patrons are doing the things that they're doing. And remember, it does not have to make sense to mortals. Yep. So next question, Brian, guilds, institutions, churches, and or armies, when you are building an organization of some sort, what should a new DM know?
1: I'm going to actually borrow what you just said, because, or well, state what you just said. Guilds, institutions, churches, armies, whatever, have a goal in mind. Define and determine what their goal is. And then that organization structure will go, you know, will build itself out. Plus if you want to throw a little bit of political intrigue, you'll be able to, but put, just focus on what their goal is, what their mission statement is, and you'll be good to go.
0: Yeah. Um, For me, a lot of the flavor that comes from those things is how they are organized. So uh, where does your guild master sit in the grand scheme of the guild? Uh, What are the ranks in your army? So, If you have a massive organization that's a big plot point, um, fill up the ranks and then like one or two important names within those ranks. And then as you're throwing NPCs at them in the future, just randomly assign ranks down the
2: path. But have those ranks on lockdown. So you know that there's a, a corporal, a lieutenant, a captain, a commander, and a general, right? And that's how your whole thing is broken down? But we only know the general's name and this captain's name because that's who we're dealing with. Yeah. And in ten sections, I'll just make up a lieutenant as we need. Sure. That, yeah. Look, I'm I completely agree with you on that. Um and honestly, uh for me, you stole mine, Dan, you son of a bitch. Um, guilds and institutions, churches and armies, they all have secrets. Yep. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Know what their secret is. And know why they're keeping it a secret and who is privy to that information. And then allow your players to discover them. Yep. When it comes to shops, Brian, do you have anything that you would like to tell people something to think about when it comes to homebrewing a shop or an establishment, like maybe just an inn somewhere where they can spend their money?
1: Okay, sure. So, excuse me, instead of, Spending money, so to speak, I have what's called the Laughing Mimic Inn. I think it's actually appropriate hey. uh, for me to talk about it. Um, because the Laughing Mimic Inn is the starting place for my world. If you are an adventurer seeking adventure quest, whatever, um, you will go to the Laughing Mimic Inn. And its purpose is to guide adventurers to um and connect them to quests and jobs and so on and so forth. So that they can earn money, and there's you know role play significance there. But I would say if you're gonna have a shop, determine what its purpose is, like a business plan, right? You know, a shop is you know if you're an inn, well your 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 purpose is to feed people, give them drink, and you know earn some coin. If it's an armor shop, make weapons, earn coin. Or if it's an inn, maybe it's yeah, earn coin, but earn information because now you're dealing in. In that whatever the purpose may be whether it's a primary secondary tertiary whatever the purposes may be determine them define them and build around that
0: yeah for me with my shops it's uh stocking them to the item is never a fun or ideal so i don't do that i understand what the flavor of the shop is right um is it a magic shop? Is it a general goods shop? Is it just for fishermen? Is it just for right? Uh, and because of that, I will then know how much the shop owner is willing to barter and deal with shitty adventurers. Other thing I should probably know going into it because
2: all oh, I mean, everyone tries to rob the shop eventually. You know what? That builds right into my um the location of the shop is everything, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. If this shop is in a small village or in a large city, it will be very different. If it's in a small village and it is a dwarf running it, they will not kick the elves out. They will just not give a discount. But they still need the money because they don't get enough foot traffic because it's a small village. They're probably broke. But if they're in a large city where they've got foot traffic all the time, they can afford to kick somebody out. They can be more curmudgeonly or or more of an asshole to people. Um, They can be more... um, discriminatory if they want to be and that's another big factor don't just look at at how big the settlement is um, but also what races are running it what kingdoms are you in because an aracocra shop like a general store will be radically different from a triton general store true so let's talk about cities then when you're building let's talk about the small side of things villages towns and small cities what do you think brian is there any piece of advice
1: with small with that again everything is going to be scaled so perfect that you mentioned villages and towns and whatnot they're going to have the basics there they're going to have a general store where everyone kind of goes to get little things here and there they might have a you know a tanner for leathers and hides that would be used again it's all practical it's all efficient it's all you know and this is not only the historian in me as a classically trained historian but This is just also logical. You'd have basic stuff and then you would scale it above. So for the folks out there, best advice, start small example village. And if you want to build something bigger, that's when you start adding more things like, okay, maybe this medium sized city. Now they have a temple and they have a couple of other little things like a, you know, not only an armor Smith, but they have a blacksmith and this type you know two or three other types of smiths and then we have large scale cities and capitals that's when you can throw whatever and you yeah. have a market district you have an art district a temple district you know throw everything in the kitchen sink in there don't give a shit but scale. Yeah.
0: yeah uh i'm i'm i i want to build on that and what you said for the shops adam where like the different um proprietors and their details whether or not they're like what race they are what class they are what their background is like those will flavor the shops that will flavor the cities but mm-hmm. from a very practical way life needs uh three things to really live you need food water and shelter right to survive you need food water shelter so how is your city dealing with food water shelter okay Um, Which means, does it have a logging industry? Is it a stone cutting industry for building homes? Is it, where's your rivers? Where's all those things? All those need to be put
2: in. Is there agriculture? Are they trap and hunt based? Do they fish? That kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And if they're large enough, what do they do with their waste? Yep. Uh,
2: My big thing is very similar to what you just said, Dan. I'm going to build on it a little bit. But uh, cities exist for a reason in specific locations, not just because, oh, we can fish here. I'm going to take Canada for an example. Did you know that there is one road in Canada? There are more roads, but we have one big one, and it runs the entire length of the continent. And there is a road. There's yeah. <laughs> it is one of many. We call it the number one, and yeah. it goes mm. the entire length, and I'm not kidding, about 90% of Uh, the Canadian population, lives within a certain distance of this one road, which means there are small towns that have cropped up all over the place because this was about a day's journey between this major city and this major city back when this road was established, knowing why this is out there. You cannot really have a functioning settlement or society that is completely cut off from the rest of the world and still have it be a nice diverse um settlement like you can have your elves that live by themselves over there way on the other side of the map but they are not going to have general stores for people they will have their own weird economies and shit as well especially when you get into smaller kind of wayfaring villages or um little stops on the side of the highway think about truck stops most inns and taverns that exist in medieval times were their versions of truck stops? Yep. Okay. So, what about larger cities, kingdoms, countries? What do you What do you have to uh, to let people know about that, Brian?
1: I usually try to balance it. So, in my world, um, the dwarves um, there's five, well, led by a high king or queen, depending on you know who the, that first child is. But
2: why are they high?
1: Basically, there's elves. Yeah. There There's four royals, and then the fifth. Is the High King or Queen, which rules in everything dwarvish? So there's five kingdoms, so to speak, um, all united under the this major uh, monarch, so to speak. But each nation, each kingdom, has their set. They're known for something, right? The gems, like the dwarves, are known for their gemstones, and 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 their and really their them as crafters. The elves are known for their magic and their fighting style. The humans are known for this thing. The gnomes in my world are known for technology, actually. They're, think steampunk Rome. So they're known for each thing, which gives them a balance, right? They're not going to, you can go to war with the gnomes, the Alessian Empire. However, they have steampunk on their side. They're the ones pumping out. You know, they created the first uh, airship in my world. You may, you know, that may, you may do some damage because they also don't believe in magic. They believe in technology. So it's kind of like that balance where if you're thinking of kingdoms and countries, think of what, you know, how did they become so big? What is their strength? What are their exports, imports? That's when you're kind of going into like GDP and stuff like that, where it's like, okay, from a U.S. perspective, right? Since I'm in North Carolina, I can think, okay, North Carolina is a huge agricultural um, state, and but it's also a large banking city or a banking state. It's got the second largest banking city in our nation. So from that perspective, if I wanted to scale, okay, the U.S. Well, the US provides a lot of things, such as food for the rest of the world. I think like seven sixty to seventy percent of cert of what we export is food. Uh yeah, not import, export. So you gotta think, okay, like what's that balance there? Yeah. And that's what I would say for kingdoms and countries. If you wanna make them, just make them balanced. Think pick one thing that they're really, really good at and build that kingdom around it. Think Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah. Um, And like, you don't have to go, this is for my answer, you don't have to go too far into like the GDP and what it is just like, find that one thing that they need. So they import it that one thing that they have in plenty. So they export it. Right. Um, For me, how do they defend themselves? Right. And what are their relationships to the immediately bordering surrounding nations? Mm -hmm. Right. Those are going to be the things that are going to really impact how you build that kingdom because if they're at war with the south but they're good allies with the east is the east helping and then you get to you get to spiderweb out from there yeah
2: yeah i'm gonna take that a step further and i'm gonna say why is this city here right why is this kingdom or country in this area how did it prosper the reason that that there are countries that prosper is threefold one the economy like we've talked about um Two is the natural landmarks that are around that they can really lean into. Hey, they've got the ability to do a shit to um, harvest a shit ton of corn, yeah, because they've got the agricultural ability, or they're clearly defensible up against the mountains and they mine, right? Or they're on a coast and that helps. Yeah. Whatever their um, natural resource is is going to be directly responsible for how they are able to find their successes. Um, We are not going to have a large, successful city out in the middle of a desert wasteland where there are no resources but sand. Unless you bring magic into it, and at that point, what magic's being used, and go nuts. Don't just think, that that's my big thing, don't just think about the uh, base level of medieval cities and countries and kingdoms. This is a fantasy setting. If your city flies, know why. Yeah.
1: And if you don't mind me adding one more thing, I would say use that, use the medieval fantasy or the medieval as your foundation and then build upon it like Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones did a fantastic job or George R. R. Martin did a fantastic job of displaying the reasons why right yeah. Casterly Rock why is why are the Lannisters this way and why are, are is because well they just their family discovered the gold mines and were able to mine this gold or Highgarden right you know the not only from a tactical perspective but they yeah. harvest most if not all the food in for the kingdoms or for the kingdom think of those reasons but I, but like you said the foundations that medieval you can add the why for whatever.
2: Okay, so let's talk about the first thing that everybody does when they sit down to come up with their basic geography is they sit down and draw a map. Do you have a map making tool, like just a a hint, something for someone that is brand new to map making for them to think about to help them with this?
1: Honestly, I'm not a cartographer, but I really love incarnate. I use incarnate and the reason I use it is because it's user friendly. And I can basically say, you know what? I want this map. I want my kingdom to, or I want this area to have some mountains and I'm going to build a, a kingdom around in a big city, whatever. They chose the mountains because, well, they're dwarves and they chose it because it's in, there's that protection. There's all that, but they're mining from it. So they're going to be where they make their money from, right? Yeah. So I do, I, I kind of think, Back to what if I'm going to make a map, it's got to be practical. It's got to have the it's got to basically showcase everything that I've written down in my notes and what I have written down from a homebrew perspective. I personally, like I said, using incarnate because it it's really easy to make maps with them.
2: Uh,
0: for me, honestly, uh, my advice would be to relax. Um, everybody gets so it wrapped up in detailing their map that the rest of their campaign world building doesn't happen. 8%. Your party is starting in a tavern in the middle of a podung village in the middle of nowhere in this country. And will have no interactions with anyone above the mayor in terms of uh, someone who holds an official capacity within that country. Okay. You have time to flesh out the peripheries. Okay. So start, start small, build out and, uh, just tackle these things down, uh, tackle these things as they come up in the game, right? Or, or try to think a little bit ahead or expand when you have a little bit of time. But you don't have to have all the details ironed out. You don't even have to have most of the details of the world ironed out by the time you start running sessions in the world, right? So relax, calm down, figure out what you need to start playing, build that first, and then expand from there.
2: Honestly, um, I agree with you 100%. I know that can be difficult for some people. So here's my insight for map making, because I spent a lot of time doing maps myself. I hit my little Zen moment and I almost meditate doing it Um, really quickly. I, I operate on three basic rules. One, there's no such thing as a straight line in nature. If there's a straight line, it's been man made. Yeah, true. Two, water follows the path of least resistance towards the next biggest body of water creeks yep. lead to streams lead to rivers lead to ocean yep. you are not going to have rivers slowly start to spread out to become different streams that doesn't happen they become lakes and third and honestly the thing that irks me the most um i absolutely hate this about the lord of the rings and the only way that i that i accepted at all is because it's a fantasy world there's no such thing as a lonely mountain mountains come in ranges yep even if there is one mountain, it is surrounded by foothills. You do yeah. not walk up to the base of a mountain. So yeah. when you think about where mountains are, think about the range, and then remember that on either side of the mountain, the water flows in two different directions. Yep. Right? And they don't flow in straight lines. As long as you know that, you will be just fine. Yeah, true. So are there any final thoughts about home brewing from anybody? Any summaries you want to go over before we wrap this very long episode up?
1: Just do it.
0: Do it.
2: Yeah. Don't be
0: intimidated by home brewing. Yeah, there's a lot that we talked about in this one, but I think my big takeaway is don't be intimidated by it. It, It's not really as hard as you're making it. Like you're making it seem to yourself, right? Like you're getting yourself worked Mm -hmm. up into a
2: tizzy. It'll be fine. And honestly, if you start small, you will know when the balance starts to tip out of your favor. Yeah. And it doesn't take much to rebalance things if you go in small increments. If it's your first time DMing, do not hand out plus 10 armor and dragon mounts.
1: Unless that it's to me. Cool. <laughs> Unless <Yeah>. I'm playing. <laughs>
2: um, that yeah, that could be cool, but you're going to have a bad time. You're, the sure. monster manual is going to be useless to you. Yep. Um, so, I mean, that's it for this part of the discussion on homebrewing, but we're not done yet. The next time we'll be circling back to our conversation on Dungeon Mastering, we'll be diving into specifics about homebrewing spells, items, and monsters. So, subscribe or follow, and check out and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be returning to our conversation on dragons, where we're going to take a look at the history of dragon powers in D&D, and what else we can do to beef up the big scaly villains to be worthy of their place in the game's title. If you'd
0: like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store for some sexy merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So So please pass the word to everybody you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're gonna get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, requests, and questions for our mailbags can be sent to info at
1: itsamimic.com.
0: All right, in 10 sentences or less, Adam, 10 or less, pitch your homebrew campaign or the setting that you're running and why you made it. This is grab the dice and roll it for initiative. Got a nine.
2: I got a 16.
1: I got a four.
2: All right, Adam. All right. <clears throat> I knew that this was going to be an issue, so I actually wrote mine out uh, ahead of time. And it is technically 10 sentences, but I have God damn. thoroughly abused run-on sentences and uh, semicolons. So buckle up. In the beginning. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was only one immortal being in an infinite and eternal void of nothingness. And so it decided to create, which meant that it had to pull aspects of itself from its own essence and create others like it. These were the creation gods. And because they were never infinite or eternal like the first entity, they knew limitations, which in turn allowed them to have imagination and therefore build an infinite world of order and simplicity with no boundaries, lush plant life, and harmonious animal life, and a static concept of how time moves. But then they began to bicker. The original entity retreated out of their scope and those left behind accidentally committed four acts that would change the fate of existence forever. They allowed the only intelligent creatures, which are humans, to witness conflict. Uh, They pushed the goddess of death away. They realized that they were harming their creation, so they fled the original realm and locked it from the outside, And they left the goddess of death alone to her own devices, where she created new companions, which were twisted perversions of her family members and the first concepts of sin. When the goddess of death left to find the others, she buried her creations in the earth, where they slowly began to infect the world. Then she joined the other gods and created the multiverse of every kind of world imaginable, including their first poor attempt, which was a chaotic cosmos of utter insanity that they imprisoned inside an empty abyss of loneliness, and everything like Ravnica, Theros, and Eberron as well. Whenever the gods made something, they would have to pluck away a piece of themselves to do it. Every time they did it, they became diminished, and every minor god that they created had to follow that same method of creation, like Corallon, and Groomsh, and Horonius and Mistra, and all of the standard ones. The only god that didn't do it was the Goddess of Death, who learned her lesson before when she was alone, and the anti-god, who was the consciousness left inside the realm of chaotic insanity. Now, the gods have been so diminished that they have disappeared from reality, and the Goddess of Death is so lonely and tired of being hated by every creature in existence that she's trying to find a way back into the first primary world of humanity, and infinite resources so that she can reboot existence and try to make everyone understand that she is worthy of being loved. Her search, however, results in her inadvertently ripping holes in reality that both eventually destroy the world she's currently in, as well as sucking powerful creatures, items, and magics into the original mundane world of humans. Now, the multiverse is decaying and being destroyed by the most powerful being in existence, the anti-god has been freed, the proximity of the goddess of death has awoken the slumbering sins that are underground and the heroes of the campaign have been ripped from their homes and families into a world full of fear and prejudice where the strong are taking over, the weak are cowering in the shadows of magic and existence itself is beginning to decay.
0: Awesome, yeah. Why did you make it then, Adam?
2: Um, because I thought that the creation myths and the way that the gods work in d are kind of bullshit. There's not a single God among them. They're all just a bunch of superpowers and and immortal beings with long lives. Yeah, The fact that you can travel to any one of the different planes that's their home realm and then kill them there and they stay dead means that they're not gods. So I wanted a creation myth. I wanted to justify every addition, every homebrew world, and every one of the alternate multiverses in D&D. And uh, I wanted to bring it all together. With some super fucking high stakes. Yeah. And I
0: mean, it also uh, opens up the ability and gives you a rational reason why you could have a Leonin standing next to a gnome, standing next to a... Warforged. Um, Warforged, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so for me, my homebrew world is called Garen It is a um, massive conical world, funny enough, um, but it, it plays out like it's a flat sphere um like a flat earth kind of thing but a sphere um the long and short of the ethos behind the campaign is there are 13 gods who are actual tactile wander the ground live with men gods but they are 40 foot tall limestone creatures that have been assigned godhood and I really took a lot of inspiration from the whole kuo thing. If a bunch of people believe it hard enough, that thing becomes a god. And that's kind of what happened with these guys. The, the people who live on this realm believed hard enough that um, these things became godlike entities. And they wander and there's a bunch of, I wanted to have a traditional standard high fantasy level campaign. But um, I also wanted to have some weird stuff in it so each god is actually a seal um who if killed and brought low uh will unlock the crypts within garen genus, which holds one of the actual gods from D lore there is dune it is where he has been held in the astral plane and uh should the all the seals be unlocked he is going to be freed so um the Most of the campaigns have started with one of the gods already missing, um, which caused a calamity in the Southern continent of the world. So the reason why I created this one was one, I wanted my own thing to kind of build out. And I, I really wanted a high fantasy, but also one that has a high religious bend to it, um, where the gods are very active and very forefront as a concern in the world. Um, The main reason why is because I like that kind of fantasy, to be honest, and I wanted to have my own thing where I could kind of inject little flavors throughout. So um, and I really like the game Shadows of the Colossus and the fact of having like 40 foot tall limestone gods wandering around was like just metal. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. Brian, what about you?
1: Okay, so kind of take this into parts, right? So part one, what is my homebrew world to describe it? Ecopia is the culmination of all of the experiences as humans. We've experienced joy, love. We've also experienced hurt, sorrow. And the gods throughout the beginning of creation have felt that as well. That emotion is still there. So my homebrew world is a full experience of all the emotions and allowing yourself to also open up your perspective in my world and in my game that i currently run everything is about perspective everything is about emotion and everything to from the gods in the celestial plane that are gods they die quote unquote but they'll come back right they still feel emotion so that would be the one thing i would hammer is that this world is unlike any it does not follow necessarily forgotten realms. It has, I I pay homage to it, but it doesn't. It is that this is a completely, if you remember the books, uh, the build your own adventure books. Yeah. Yeah. My homebrew is a build your own adventure. Cool. Um, That's the best way to describe it. And the reason I did it is again, I wanted to pay homage to all of the things that I loved from Tolkien to he-man right all the the lore that i and that i grew up with that i loved and the stories that were told but i noticed and this is the second reason i created it, it was that no one was able to build or tell a story to the fullest extent that they wanted because some and most players in my experience felt chained down to a module Or to someone else's, you know, style of DMing. Yeah. And I wanted to provide the solution of, hey, you can be whoever you want. You can say whatever you want in a respectful manner. But you can express and feel whatever you want. And that is why I did it.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, I want to ask one more question. Same initiative order as we go through because these are our own homebrew campaigns. They're kind of special in our own little place. I didn't write this down. I'm sorry, Adam. But would you let another DM
2: run inside of your world? Yeah, absolutely. My world is literally infinite. You can do anything in it. You can't, you, I will say you don't have access to a handful of things, but yeah, go nuts. Leave, leave my goddess of death alone. She's up to shit, but go nuts with everything else.
0: Yeah, for me, it's kind of the same. It's just like, there's a couple caveats you need to know if you're going to run in the world that if you implement these points, it kind of throws everything out of whack. So avoid these plot threads, but go nuts outside of that, right? Um, Especially since if someone's playing in my campaign world, I'm probably going to be a player there. So um, I'm I'm 100% on board with someone running in my world.
1: I'm going to say yes with a bit of a reservation. (laughs) The thing is, I would absolutely have anyone run a game in my world. But to be true to the nature of this world and to ensure that almost the questions that have been asked in the past don't get uh, reversed or do not get altered in any way, I would walk them through, hey, look out for this, look out for this, and have fun. Here you go. I would just be I would caution anyone who's going to run a world or run a game in my world um, to do that. But then on the other hand, I love to be surprised. So if you want to take all the, it's like it's like music, you learn the rules and then you break them. Yeah, that's what I that's the only thing I would tell a DM who's going to run in my world. Here are the things to know about. Guess what? This player's doing this or whatever you need to know but have at it. So I guess it would be yes, just with a caveat of a warning. Cool.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye.